Well, if you're new here today, my name is Jonathan, and I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. I'm so glad that you're joining us. Today, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Exodus. We're going to look at the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, which is the story of God calling Moses and using Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land. And it is an amazing story, but it starts pretty rough. The first chapter of Exodus, which we're going to look at today, starts with Jacob and his 12 sons being in Egypt and enjoying the safety and the comfort of that land. But the chapter ends with a, a selective state-sponsored genocide against the babies of the Israelites, the, the male babies of Israelites in the land of Egypt. So it's a, it's a pretty profound transition that they experienced. And we want to look at it today. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn me. We'll be to Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to read for you uh, how it all begins. This is what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Ephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Man, it's, it's quite a story uh, to begin this, uh, this book of the Bible. You know, the sons of Jacob moved down to Egypt because Joseph was there, and God used that to save them from death due to famine in the land of Canaan. But it, but it ends in this very difficult place that the Israelites found them in, themselves in. But when the, when the Israelites came into the land of Egypt, it, they began to multiply. They began to, to, the population began to grow huge. In fact, if you were to take uh, uh, verse 7 and, and translate it literally, it would say this. As for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. In other words, the population of the Israelites was rocketing up much faster than the population of the Egyptians, even though there was still many more Egyptians than there were 
Israelites. And then along the way, a new Pharaoh came to power. And it says that the new Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't aware of Joseph or the arrangements that had been made with Joseph. What it means is the political winds had shifted. And even though he knew about Joseph and what the previous Pharaoh had promised, he was doing the opposite. Again, if you know the history, there's a bunch of political reasons for that. But now this small minority of people who had this, this sort of in with Pharaoh and had this special status now were out. And they actually ended up being greatly disliked by Pharaoh and ultimately by the people of Egypt. And he looked and he saw that their population was growing like crazy. And he said, I've got to stop this because it'll become a threat to me. And so he set on this program of slowing and diminishing and stopping the the population growth of the people of Israel. And the way that he started that was by enslaving them. And his goal in enslaving them was to work them so hard that he literally worked them to death. Uh, He wanted to keep the population down. And so to do that, you have to make the work so severe that those who are healthy and strong end up weak and sick. And those who are weak and sick end up dying. That's the plan. And no doubt, somewhere in his administration, someone also figured that if they worked the Israelites hard enough, if they separated the men and women, if they made them tired enough, they wouldn't have the energy to procreate. And therefore, they would be able to limit the population growth. And so uh, he worked them so hard. And Moses, who had grown up in the palace of, of Egypt, I mean, he witnessed this firsthand. And he says, he says in verse 13 that they worked them ruthlessly. And then when you read verse 14, he can hardly come up with enough descriptions for how brutal it is for the Israelites. I mean, he says their lives were bitter. They did hard service. They did all kinds of work. They worked them ruthlessly and he worked them as slaves. I mean, it was utterly, utterly brutal, the kind of place, the, the kind of work that, that Pharaoh made them do because he was trying to kill them. But when that didn't work, Then he tried a second tact. He increased his efforts and he calls in the midwives. And he orders the midwives that when they're there with with the mother giving birth, the Hebrew mother giving birth, that when that baby comes out, if that baby is a boy, that while the mother is exhausted and lying there, that they're to, to smother that boy, to strangle that boy, and then to kind of come around and say, I'm so sorry, your child was stillborn and it's a tragedy. And he wanted the, the, the very ladies who were supposed to bring life into the, the lives of these Hebrew uh, people, he wanted them to murder and to kill their own children while they were in the very room that they were in. But when that, when that backfired on him, then he openly declared a state-sponsored genocide of all of the newborn Israelite baby boys. But instead of simply ordering the people of Egypt to murder them, he ordered them to throw the, the, the babies into the, the Nile River. Now, there's two reasons for that. Number one, you have to understand that all of the Egyptian population lived along the Nile River. The Nile River was for them a source of life, a source of water, a source of transportation, but it was also their sewage system. So by throwing the babies into the water, it was a very convenient way to get rid of them. There wasn't that sort of nasty business of, of killing a baby. And, and it, was, it disappeared quickly. It was kind of like killing, you know, innocent children behind closed doors so the vast majority of people don't see how brutal and how awful it is. So it was first of all about convenience. But then secondly, the, the Nile River in the, uh, in the culture of ancient Egypt was considered one of the gods. It, you know, ancient Egypt had this pantheistic view that there were gods of everything and the Nile River was a god. And so by ordering the 
people of Egypt to throw the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. In essence, he was reducing their moral responsibility because they could say, well, I am, I am giving this baby to the, the God of the Nile and the God of the Nile will choose whether that baby lives or not. So it's not really my thing. In other words, this, this, this genocide was a matter of convenience and choice. And it was a selective, gender-based, racially-based genocide towards these infant boys from the Hebrews. This was pretty brutal. I mean, in, in, on every level, the, the life of the Israelites was incredibly terrible and hard and awful in every way. But it's fascinating to see that the author of Exodus, likely Moses, it's, it's fascinating to see how he starts this whole chapter, how he starts this whole book. In English, it says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. But in Hebrew, there's an added word that didn't get translated into English. In Hebrew, the very first word of the book of Exodus is actually just one Hebrew letter. It's the Hebrew letter wa, and it means and. Moses started this book with the word and. And that wasn't an accident. That wasn't just sort of a, 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 an afterthought. It was very intentional because what he's saying is that the book of Exodus is intimately tied with what goes before. The story of what's happening here in Exodus 1 is not some random thing that kind of happened along the way. It is actually part of God's plan for his people. It's a continuation of the story of what God's doing. If you go back into Genesis chapter 12, you know that God came to a man named Abram and he called Abram to leave his land and his people and to go to the land that God would call him and that he would make him into a great nation. In fact, he made this covenant with Abram and this is, this is what the covenant is. He said this to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So three things he says here. First of all, he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Not, not just a big family, not just like 30 kids sitting around the, the table. I'm going to make you a major nation in the world. And secondly, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so that your name is great. But those who curse you, those who dishonor you, I will curse you. And we're going to see how God fulfills his promise in this story in Exodus that we're looking at. And thirdly, he says, through you all nations will be blessed, which of course points to the coming of Jesus, in which all of the nations, including ourselves, are blessed because of what Jesus did, a descendant of Abram. Now, of course, Abraham, after Abraham, his grandson Jacob had 12 sons, and uh, they sold, those boys sold one of their brothers into Egypt, into slavery in Egypt. And God in his, uh, God, God uh, protected Joseph. He raised him uh, to become literally the prime minister of Egypt and to save Egypt from a famine. And in this process to save, uh, to save his own family in Canaan from, from death by famine. And at one point he's reunited with his brothers who feel such shame for what they did to him and can't believe that, you know, he wasn't punishing them. And this is what he says about his own life. He says this, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me 
and don't delay. In other words, it was God who caused Joseph to be sold into slavery. It was God who saw that he would eventually rise to become prime minister of Egypt. It was God who put him in that place to rescue his family. And it was God who would bring his family down into Egypt. In fact, if you're not sure about that, listen to Genesis 46.2. It says this, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In other words, it was God who led the people of Israel down into Egypt, where they now find themselves. And now at the beginning of this book of Exodus, Moses wants to make it very clear that where they find themselves is not an accident. Rather, it's a continuation of God's plan. And to drive the point home, after starting this book with the word and, the very first words of Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 are these. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. And he quotes directly the words of Genesis 46, 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Moses wants us to understand perfectly clear that where the people of Israel find themselves now, not some random accident. Not, not, God didn't sort of get distracted along the way and step out of the room and, and chaos happened while he was gone. He didn't kind of get in over his head and didn't realize that terrible things were going to happen to his people in Israel. Moses wants to make it abundantly and utterly clear that what is happening to his own people, the people of God, was by God's, it was as a result of God's sovereign hand at work. And for the people of Israel who find themselves in this terrible place, Moses wants them to understand that who they are and what God is doing in their life, it can only be understood in light of their history, in light of what God has done in the lives of the people who have gone before them, and in light of who God is in, in the stories before them. And ultimately, that story stretches all the way back to the beginning of creation. And it's a story about the God uh, of all creation who is sovereign over every single aspect of creation. A God who brings about creation by his own will, and therefore all of creation is subject to him. In fact, nothing in all of creation is outside of his control. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses this same idea to explain to us the deity of Jesus himself. This is what he writes. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before him, and in him all things hold together. This is the sovereignty of God. Not, not, not started it and kind of let it going, but literally controlling every single aspect of what happens in his creation. The Belgic Confession, which was written during the Reformation to outline an understanding of of what the Bible teaches around doctrine and theology, says this about the sovereignty of God. It says, We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. Nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. Which sounds great except when things go bad, 
Except when entire nations are enslaved. Except when healthcare workers who are supposed to, to, to give life are actually ordered to bring death. Except when there's a selective genocide against a whole group of people. When that happens, the question is, well, really, how, how can God be sovereign over that? Where is God in that kind of thing? But the alternate explanation is that all that happens in the world is really just the result of fate. It's just the machinery uh, uh, of this meaningless life that just happens to happen. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, explains it this way. He says, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. If there isn't a sovereign God in control over all of creation, including the bad things that happen, then as Richard Dawkins argues, then there is no such thing as evil. Then everything that happens in this world, the enslavement of nations, the murder of innocent children, the you know, genocide, that can't be called evil. That's just the machinery of evolution doing its work. That work. That's just the, you know, the, 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 um, the survival of the fittest. And you, then you can't stand up and call that evil, or you can't even call it wrong. And if you get a wrong deal, a raw deal, if you're taken advantage of, if you're abused, if you're used, if, if bad things are done to you by others, well, that's just dumb luck. Too bad. It sucks to be you. I mean, there's nothing that can or should be done around, or that could be done around that. And there's nothing redemptive. There's, there's no hope in the end, except that maybe you'll be lucky enough to avoid more pain and more suffering in your life. In the end, if God isn't sovereign over all of history, including the hard stuff, then it's just fate and nothing really matters that much. Famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he explains the difference between this idea of fate and the idea of the sovereignty of God. And he uses the word providence, which is another way to describe the, pro- the, the sovereignty of God. And this is what he writes. Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence, or the sovereignty of God. Providence says, whatever God ordains, must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. It's all because of the sovereignty of God, even the suffering and the hardship has a purpose that has meaning and has value and ultimately works out good for those who follow after God, who know Him. You know, it's fascinating to notice in this opening chapter of Exodus that doesn't refer to God at all, except for that the, the, the midwives feared God, but, but there's no sense that God is present in this situation. There's no notice of him anywhere here. It's just bad and worse and terrible things that are happening. And you know, this often is the case for us when we look at the hard things in the world around us. We say, where, where is God? Why doesn't he do something about that? Why, 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 isn't he, why isn't he doing something? Is he impotent or does he not care? 
And if it's bad enough in the world out there or in our world, then our faith begins to waver. and We begin to ask whether God even really exists. And this is not uncommon. This happened to one of the psalmists who wrote the psalms in the Old Testament, a guy named Asaph. And he wrote a psalm about this happening in his life, Psalm 73. And this is what he writes. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, he says, I almost lost my faith in God. And then he goes on to explain why. He says this, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he goes on to explain, look, those who do evil seem to get away with it. Where's God in all this? What's he doing? Because they seem to live a nice life and I'm not. In fact, at one point he says, he says, you know, my serving God seems to have been a waste of time and effort in my life. And the thing is burning him up. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Like, he's got to, he's got to process it somewhere. And so at, at one point in verse 15, he says this, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. In other words, he said, if I had just talked to all the young people around me about it, I would have just led them to doubt your goodness to God. So I couldn't really do that. But what am I to do with this thing? I, I just, I'm struggling with it like crazy. This is what he says next. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, the thing was burning him up until he went back to God, till, till he entered the sanctuary of God, till he went back to his word and began to examine all of this in light of who God is. You see, our tendency when we see hard things and bad things happening and don't understand where God is, is not to press into God, but rather to step back, to, to kind of move away from God and to grind on it on our own and say, this doesn't make sense. But Asaph, the psalmist says, no, no, when it finally became clear to me, when it finally made sense to me, it was when I pressed into God and understood who he is and how he's at work from the beginning of creation until this time. When I began to see where I fit in that story and what God is doing in the big story, then, then I understood. And then I saw their end. What would happen to them? Not right now, but in the end, because God is in fact sovereign and just in this world. You see, that's what Moses, that's what Moses wants us to see in this opening chapter of Exodus. You know, although God seems to be silent, he's actively at work. His plans are not stopped. In fact, he's sovereign over everything that is happening, and it's happening for a purpose. So, for example, God made this promise to Abraham, this man who, who along with his wife, couldn't even have a child. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he waited until Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were like so old, it was impossible to have a child by natural means. And then God, in his sovereignty, gave them a child. One, one child. He said, from that child, I mean, I will make you a great nation. And now God is doing that very thing. He's fulfilling his province, his promise in a sovereign way. So much so that Moses in Exodus chapter one, in this chapter we're looking at verse 12 says this, but the more that they, the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. In other words, in, 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 in light of the fact that the most powerful person in the entire world at that time, Pharaoh, 
used all of his energy and his force to crush God's plans, to limit the population of, of the Israelite people, God and his sovereignty, in spite of it, was causing this beautiful, brilliant, incredible nation to grow in the midst of incredible suffering. God's sovereignty at work, even though it appears like he's silent in the midst of it all. And the midwives. I mean, Moses goes out of his way to tell us the names of these two midwives. And the question is, why is that? I mean, in the first five chapters of Exodus, Moses doesn't tell us the name of Pharaoh or his magicians. He doesn't tell us the name of the the princess that adopted him, nor uh, of the elders of Israel. In the first five chapters, he only gives us the name of, of Jacob's sons and the names of his own family and the names of these two women. Now, why is that? And the answer is because these two women were heroes. These two women, at great risk, at great personal risk, at the risk of their lives, feared God. And in the midst of these terrible, horrible times that they were living in, they did what was right. Where is God in the middle of all that? He was at work through these two ordinary ladies who faithfully feared God. And he was working through them to see his will accomplished. And not only that, because they were faithful, because they feared God, he looked down on them and he blessed them. We don't know a lot about midwives in that time, but it's very likely that they themselves had fertility issues. They didn't have any children because, you see, you can't be a midwife unless you're free to run off whenever you want uh, in the middle of the night, the middle of the day to help other ladies give birth to their children. And they wouldn't have had children not because they didn't want to. In that day, every woman was wanted to, it was expected to have children, and it was considered shameful if you couldn't. So did they want children? Yes. Did they spend their life helping other women experience incredible joy as they had children and not have their own? Yes. Does God see their faithfulness and again in his sovereignty grant them children? Yes. And what does he do there? Not only does he grant them children, but he adds more to the population of this growing nation that he is blessing. Here too, we see God's sovereignty at work. Then there was the genocide the selective, racially motivated killing of the Jewish male boys. And where where was God in that? I mean, you know, such wickedness, such injustice. You know, without an understanding of the sovereignty of God, this is just fate. This is just, uh, as Dawkins would argue, this is just bad, dumb luck for those poor baby boys and for their heartbroken families. And it's just the way it is, and there's nothing that explains it more than that. But not if there's a God who is sovereign over all of history, a holy and just God. He will surely see that justice is done. You know, if you read the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, it comes to this fascinating chapter where the Lamb, that's Jesus, begins to open the seals. And the first four seals that Jesus opens are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're, They're conquest, war, famine, and death. And he, and, and he releases these, these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then the Apostle John, he's watching all this. And when the fifth seal is open, he says, there's all these, all these men and women, these, these people who have followed God, who are martyrs for the faith. In other words, their blood was shed. They were killed simply because they had given their lives to follow Jesus and for no other reason. 
And he says, when, when the fifth seal was opened, he says this in, in Revelation 6, 9. He says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Notice this, even in heaven, they're crying out saying, God, when will there be justice for our blood that was shed, our innocent blood that was shed? But notice also the way that they address God. They say, oh, sovereign Lord. Oh, God, who is in control of all of history from beginning to end. The holy and just one. When will you do this? And if you read the verses that follow, what Jesus says is, not yet. Just wait. There will actually be more who join your ranks. More who are martyrs because they agree to follow me. Because they committed to follow me. But... But justice indeed will be done. And if you read the book of Revelation, you know that that's, that's the case. God doesn't always bring justice immediately, right away. But because he is sovereign, because he is holy, there is always justice. In the case of the Israelites, because, uh, because the Egyptians killed the male children of the, of the Israelites, God in the Passover killed the firstborn of every Egyptian in that in that nation, in that time. And because they threw them into the river, God ended up killing the Egyptian boys who had grown up to be young men in the Egyptian army. He, he chose to kill them by drowning them in the Red Sea. Where's God in the midst of the chaos? Where's God in the midst of the injustice that's happening in the world, the, the heartache and the brokenness? Where's God in the midst of the big things that are happening out there? Where's God in the midst of your own personal life and the world that you're in? The answer is that God is at work even if you can't immediately see him. The answer is that God is sovereign over everything that happens, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the hard things. And what happens in your life and in this world is not just dumb luck and chance and fate. It's part of his plans and his purposes. And when we understand that, when we grasp that and, and see it in the light of, of history, in light of what the Bible teaches, when we go into the sanctuary of God and see it, it changes our perspective. It helps us see the world in a different light. It gives us a confidence and a hope that we can have because God ultimately is in control of all things. You know, tomorrow, our nation is having an election. We're going to have a federal election to choose who the, the next prime minister, the, 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 the government of our nation is going to be. And it's important that we see that in light of the sovereignty of God. Now, does that mean we shouldn't vote because God is in control of all? No, no, we should absolutely vote. Uh, this is a privilege that we have as citizens in this nation that billions of people around the world don't have. So we should surely take advantage of that privilege to help choose who will be our next uh, leaders, our next government. Does it mean that it doesn't matter who we vote for? Of course not. You should do your due diligence and you should determine which candidate you think would be best to give leadership in our nation. And you should go and you should vote for that candidate. But, but are we going to look to that government, whatever it is, as the source of, our, source of our salvation, our hope for the future? Not a chance. No way. Our hope is not in whatever government we get. Our hope is in the, the sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth. So tomorrow night, you know, whether you get a government that you had hoped for or not, whether they pass the kind of laws that you hope for or not, it, it doesn't... It, 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 
You know, you could be disappointed if they don't pass the kind of laws you hope for. Well, we shouldn't panic because in the end, God is sovereign and his plans will never be foiled. And when we have that kind of perspective, it changes how we see everything. It changes how we understand a worldwide pandemic like COVID. It changes how we understand the fact that Afghanistan fell to the Taliban with all of their evil plans and intentions. It changes the, the, the way that we see how our culture is shifting and moving away from what we would consider good values and proper ways to live. And because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean that we don't care. That's what people who believe in fate do. They don't care because it's fate. Nothing can be done. It's just the machinery of evolution doing their thing. Because God is sovereign, we care deeply. Because God is sovereign, we can step in and serve and give and go and do and seek justice and fight for righteousness and do what's right because we know that what we do matters. There's purpose to it. And it's all involved in the sovereignty of what God is doing. It's all part of his greater plan. So the sovereignty of God allows us to walk forward knowing that we, what we do is not in vain. And God's sovereignty extends uh, not only to the big events in the world out there, not, not only to the, the, the major events, but also into your personal life, into your world. And if you're feeling a little bit like Asaph, the psalmist, who says, I'm looking around and I just see God's silence. I just see the wicked flourishing and I wonder if I'm wasting my time here. The call to you is not to back away from God. Not, not to just grind it out in your own head, but rather to go into the sanctuary of God to go back into the word of God, to examine God's character, to see your life in light of the broader story, in light of those who have gone before you, in light of creation, in light of the exodus, in light ultimately of Jesus Christ himself, the son of God who came and suffered and died on the cross and rose again to redeem and restore and renew and ultimately who will come again to judge. And when you see your life in light of that, even in the midst of the hardest of times, when you understand the sovereignty of God, it brings a confidence and a hope that you cannot find anywhere else. Thank God. Thank God that we serve a sovereign God. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you are not some little quibbling God in the corner, some clockmaker who made the whole thing and wound it up and walked away and is doing something else. You are a God who is sovereign over all of creation. From the very moment of creation into all of eternity, you will rule and reign in utter and complete sovereignty and not just in the good times, but in the hard times. And God, I pray that that truth would just drill so deeply into our hearts that we would live in light of it. God, that, that as we enter the sanctuary of the Lord, that it would change our perspective on our situation we find ourselves in right now, on the situation that we find ourselves in this nation, on the situation that we find ourselves in this world. God, may we live in light of the hope and the confidence that we have because you and you alone are the sovereign God over all creation. And because of that, God, we bless you. We glorify you. We lift your name up that you might be glorified. And we thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.